Thank you, worship team, and uh, I'd just like to say, I wish I could sing like that. <laughs> but love is not envious, so I don't, have, I don't have the opportunity to feel any, any envy there. That was great. There are certain passages of scripture that lay open and bare the human heart, that cut through the pretenses that we come to God. And we want to think, as we prop ourselves up with these things, that we are, in fact, uh, very wonderfully godly spiritual people, as we view ourselves. We also want to think that this is the way that God looks at us. And then you come to certain passages of Scripture that cut through all of the charades and all of the games and show us for what we really are and give us a perspective, namely God's perspective upon us. When it comes to the character of our service to God, what is he looking for? What is God really looking for? In fact, what if there was one necessary ingredient that... If it was not there, it didn't matter what you did apparently for God. It didn't matter the amazing amount of ministry that you did for God. It didn't matter if people admired you for being a very wonderful, godly Christian individual. In fact, what if there was one thing that if it wasn't there, nothing mattered? None of the things that we did None of the things we attempted really mattered. This would be a pretty important thing, wouldn't it? In fact, it creates the possibility of great tragedy. All of us are going to stand before God and give an account of our life. All of us want to think, at least if you're a thinking, feeling kind of Christian, we anticipate that day and we want very much to hear from our Lord, well done, thou good and faithful servant. We want to, we want to hear commendation from God. We want to receive reward from him that is meaningful and we hope that this is going to be the case. What if there's one thing that it doesn't matter what we do or what we did, if it wasn't a part of what we did, none of it mattered in the eyes of God. I'm thinking that you don't want to waste your life. I'm thinking, I don't want to waste my life. We've already seen how the Lord is going to do this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5 says, Therefore, do not pronounce worship, or do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. At the end of the story, when we stand before God and all of our apparent spiritual clothing is removed and we stand before God naked for who we really were in this life, he is going to look into our hearts. So we see in that passage where he's going to go. He's going to go into our hearts, specifically to the level of the purposes of our hearts. And what purpose has to be there in order for whatever we did for God to mean anything to him. This is what today's passage does. And as I said, it lays us bare. Uh, It is uh, 
It is kind of embarrassing, frankly. This is a, it's, it's welcome to Naked Sunday. It is an embarrassing and awkward thing to see ourselves from God's perspective. So here's what, here's what God's word says. Chapter 13, 1 Corinthians, verses 1 through 3. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, some of you are thinking to yourself right now, he was trying to act like it was all mysterious what that one thing was. Does he know that it's on the screen? Yes, of course I know that. And we're here in a series on love, so it's no big surprise that the one indispensable thing that we find in the passage is love. We began studying this last week. We talked about how the early Christians experienced, came to know a kind of love in the work of Christ on the cross that they struggled to find a word for. And there were words in the Greek that spoke to love, But none of them spoke to the kind of love displayed by Christ on the cross. And so they took this very obscure word for love, agape, and they infused it with meaning. They infused it with redemptive cross meaning. And it is the word that dominates the expression of love throughout the entire New Testament, agape. Now, just to make sure we know what this means... And I think if it's the one indispensable thing that is the measure of all the things that we do for God and the measure of what we will be evaluated by him someday and receive eternal reward, it's probably something we ought to make sure that we know what it is. And last week we talked about some definitions of this agape love. I want to give you just a few more. Here is one. True love is to identify our interest with that of others. What makes others happy makes us happy. True love is the widest possible affection for persons and all that is good in the universe. Another writer says this, love is not a feeling, it is a determined act of the will. Paul Tripp, love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation. This is the third time I've read this in front of everybody. I want to say reciprocity, but that's not right. Reciprocation. Reciprocation. We're going to have a good time here today, are we not? You can just tell. Does not require, you know, sometimes you get a word and it just sticks in the wrong, it's in the crawl in the wrong way. Yeah. Reciprocation. Or that the person being loved is deserving of it. Or this is my definition and will be our working definition for the series, self-giving for the good and joy of another. What is love? One of the reasons that we have to keep coming back to this definition is that in our culture, it's like a tsunami wave of definition for this that is essentially the opposite of what biblical love is. 
In fact, one way to think about love is to ask yourself, if love is a street, what kind of street is it? If love is a street, what kind of street is it? If we were honest, we would say, well, my preference for love would be that it is a one-way street from other people to me. So that my life, I'm like the cul-de-sac at the end of the one-way street, and all I do is experience the love and affection and giving to me. That would be our preference if we were honest. The more noble amongst us would say, well, actually I think it is a two-way street. Love involves giving of yourself. You give to others. You are, you are sacrificially giving for others. But as you do that, you know it is a two-way street. So you give to them. They give to you. It's this nice sort of uh, symbiotic relationship. It's good. Okay, is that love? Well, I would say to you that biblical love is a one-way street. But it is not from others to me. It is from me to others without regard of whether or not they deserve it, uh, whether or not they are lovable. It is an expression of God's love in me to them. That is agape and is so very difficult. Amen. True love is self-giving for the good and joy of another. And what I want to say today is this. Anything minus love equals nothing. Anything minus love equals nothing. We have seen that Paul is writing to these Corinthian Christians, and they are supremely self-absorbed. They think that they are really spiritually something. They are self-impressed with their church and with the way that they have progressed in their Christianity. And they think that they are better than the other churches. And they are, they just sort of, they look in the mirror and they think that they are the fairest of them all. And Paul wants to knock them off of this perch and to help them realize that what they are evaluating themselves by is entirely different than what God evaluates them by. And we see here now that without love, every accomplishment, every advancement, every sacrifice that they or we do in the eyes of God means nothing. Now, he's going to walk through some categories here, and he begins with uh, the whole matter of speech, the tongue. He says in verse 1, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So Paul begins with, Tongues, And we're going to see in chapter 14 that this was the big thing in the, in the, in the church at Corinth that they were so obsessed with. He doesn't begin with tongues because it's the most important gift. He begins with tongues because the Corinthians thought it was the most important gift. And so he starts like right with their number one, we are so cool because we have the gift of tongues. He said, well, let's start right there. Let's just say that I have tongues, I have the ability to communicate to men, and not just to men, let's say my gift is so amazing that I can actually communicate with angels. Now that would be a pretty remarkable gift. There are many people that can maybe talk a little bit and share a little bit, but if you could talk to any tongues of men and of angels, now that is a very remarkable gift of communication. And remember, in Corinth and in the Greek culture, they were enamored with the orators. 
We saw this when we began the book. They loved to get together and to go and to listen to somebody talk. And there were all these traveling orators. They were like, you know, today we go to see an NBA team. Back in that day, you went to see a OBA team. Orators. That doesn't work. N-O-A. I don't know, whatever. Anyway, they get together and they go to these gatherings where people in their big theaters and somebody would talk and develop a point and they were oratorically flourishing and people were like, oh, they love the great oratory. So to have a gift in the spiritual realm for speaking was very valued. And we could include in this preaching, teaching, exhortation, encouragement, maybe even prayer. These are all, even to this day, these are valued gifts in the church. And there are some people that are really, really, really good at it. They love, they, they're good at talking. They fill the air with their words. Talk, 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 talk. Verbosity. There's a good word. I stumbled on the other one, but I got verbosity out. Uh, they fill the air with words that are properly pronounced, and people love to listen to them. In fact, some people get paid to do it. Can you believe that? Yes, indeed. Uh, so what do we say about an amazing oratorical spiritual gift to the point of speaking with tongues of men and of angels? Well, here's what Paul says. If I do that talk, 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 but have not love... I am a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, just to draw the analogy, let me show you what he's saying. Listen carefully. What are you noticing? On the other side of the noise what good is it i don't hear nothing no more it's gone it was noisy it was loud but in the end it didn't really matter and really what can you do with a symbol i mean are there any symbol majors at ohio state i doubt it you know what can you can't what you can't play songs on a symbol mary had a little lamb It doesn't work. It just makes noise. And Paul says, even the great orators, if I had the ability to speak like like an angel, if that motive, my motive, the reason that I am doing it, is self and not love, that sound that I'm putting out, it's just noise. It has no lasting value in the eyes of God. It's like a clanging cymbal. It fades and and it's gone. Similarly, great spiritual oratory, tongue-speaking, speaking gifts, exhortations of all kind, if they are motivated by the speaker's desire to draw attention to the amazing gift or to himself, in the eyes of God, it is just noise. Why? Because anything minus love equals nothing. Say that with me. Anything minus love equals nothing. That's the formula of 1 Corinthians 13. He goes on now to say, not just speaking well, but amazing spiritual insights. He says in verse 2, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, 
And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Now what Paul's doing here is he's, he's cherry-picking from this list of gifts that we studied in chapter 12. And when we were in chapter 12, we saw that there are five lists of gifts in the New Testament. Two of them are in 1 Corinthians 12. And he cherry-picks the gifts that the Corinthians thought were the coolest ones. The ones that they were the most impressed with. And he says, let's just say, like with prophecy, or, or with knowledge, or with faith. Let's just say that I had those gifts to the max. And he puts the word all in front of each one of them. All mystery, all knowledge, all faith. In other words, let's say there was one person who was the whole package. They had the ability to understand the deep mysteries of God. They had, in, they had the ability to know and understand so that you could ask them just about anything and they knew the answer to it. Or they had tremendous faith, which I'll get to in a moment. Let's just say one person had this tremendous spiritual insight. Would that be an indication that they have the favor of God or the approval of God? Now let's ask that question because it's easy for us to think that. I know uh, for me, I've had the opportunity to be around some biblical scholar types and it's hard not to be impressed by them. I remember a year and a half ago, I was uh, I spent some time with... A little group of people were with this guy who uh, is the chair at Cambridge University of Applied Mathematics. He's a Christian apologist. He has uh, degrees like you and I have silverware. Okay, so he's just like brilliant guy. And we all sat around like at his feet. And and I have a question. And he answered the question. We're like, I got another question. And we're just like. And I walked away from that. I'm like, that guy is Talk about insightful. Talk about understanding the things of God and being able to know and and all the rest. Brilliant, brilliant guy. It would be easy for us to look at somebody like that who can explain the things of God. Perfect theology. Tremendous understanding of these things. And say, now there's a guy that God's God's approving of. I mean, look at what he knows. I mean, my goodness, he's got to be. He's got to be in the favor of God, doesn't he? Well... What Paul says here is no. Any spiritual gift God gives us can be used in amazing ways and yet secretly be done for selfish reasons, which in the eyes of God means that it merits nothing. Anything minus love equals nothing. And so I just, as a side note, I think we have to be very careful about putting anybody on a pedestal. Even in our American Christian culture, it's so easy for us to get uh, kind of like the Corinthians. We saw in chapter 1, the Corinthians were, uh, they had their favorite teacher, and they were all, they were like groupies. So in the church at Corinth, there was some people that they saw uh, Apollos, and they're like, he is so incredible. He's like my guy. He writes anything. He blogs anything. I'm reading it. That's like my thing, okay? And they all had his little groupies. And then there was another group. Oh, no. Apollos, he's okay. I'll listen to him. But Peter is the man. I mean, Peter is the man, the rock. You're following Apollos? I'm following the rock. And so they, they're groupies for him. And there was another group of people that said, Peter's okay. You know, Apollos is okay. But I mean, after all, Paul did start the church and I'm sort of a, you know, I'm a loyalist. So I'm going to go with the guy that started our church and he's the man I'm going to follow. And whatever he says, that's the way it's going to be. It's so easy in our culture today to do the very same thing, isn't it? We have people, have you read so-and-so? Have you read so-and-so? 
You can't understand the Bible unless you read what this man has said about that. Right? And they're like pushing books at you and, and somebody else has got somebody else. We have these celebrities, don't we, today? The Christian celebrities. And we want to put these people on pedestals because we think they must be amazing Christians because of the insights that they have into spiritual things. And you know what? They may very well be great Christians in the eyes of God. But just because you know your theology, and just because you can explain things spiritually, and just because you got all your T's crossed and I's dotted, does not mean that God's hand of favor and blessing and approval is upon you. In fact, I think that we need to pray for these individuals who are uniquely gifted because oftentimes a unique gift actually is a stumbling block for that individual cultivating the character of heart that God requires. I would compare it to how uh, sometimes uh, for a woman to be outwardly attractive gets in the way of her developing inward beauty. A unique gift. And if you have a unique gift, listen, that gift for you could be a stumbling block and make you think that you are more blessed by God or more favorable in the eyes of God than you actually are. Because spiritual gifts do not mean spiritual maturity. God is not impressed by our gifts. And why would that be the case? Where do we get them in the first place? From God, right? If I say to my friend here, Kathy, Kathy, I have a gift for you. Stand up a second. I now bestow upon you this gift. And right after I do that, I go, you are so amazing for having that gift. I can't believe you. You are so impressed. Look at the gift that you have. It would be silly. Why? Because I just gave you the gift, right? Thank you, Kathy. You are an amazing woman. God's not impressed by our gifts. We are impressed by gifts. God's not impressed by gifts. He gave them in the first place. What he is impressed with is why we do what we do. And when our desire in the doing of it is not the cul-de-sac one-way love to me, but when I am doing it with a heart desire to do it for the good and the joy of another and ultimately for the glory of God, which requires a kind of selflessness in the doing of it. Anything, even amazing spiritual knowledge and insight without love equals nothing. He goes on, faith minus love equals nothing. Verse 2, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Now whenever you see the word faith, you have to ask yourself, is this saving faith or is this the gift of faith? Because saving faith is that faith where we trust in Christ as our Savior. We believe in his death in our place on the cross. And we believe this alone is what reconciles us to God. That's saving faith. This here is the gift of faith, which we saw in chapter 12. Which is the ability, the unusual ability to trust in the promises of God, even in the most difficult of times. So that it's not hard to know who has the gift of faith in the room. If in your small group you're getting together and there's some crisis going on of some kind and, and uh, you know, uh, worrywart Sally over here is, is going, oh, I just don't know how it's going to come out. I'm so worried. And, and prayer warrior uh, Tom is over there going, we need to pray about this. There's 
maybe one person in the room that goes, God is going to come through. And y'all look at him like, where do you get that from? He has the gift of faith. There are some people, and God blesses the church with people, they just, they just believe God's going to come through. And often those people have really great stories of how God came through when they trusted in him. And this is what Paul is saying here. Let's just say that you have the gift of faith. And your gift of faith is so incredible that you actually can spiritually move mountains. Big things happen as a result of your gift. You've got incredible stories of what God has done when you trusted in Him. We could look at somebody like that, hear their story, and go, wow. I mean, if you can do that, you must. I mean, if you've got that kind of faith, you must be, like, good with God. Or a different analogy, let's just say that uh, at our Lake Michigan baptism a few weeks ago, that uh, we're all sitting there and we're having a nice time and, and somebody, one of our members stands up in front of the church and goes and prays and says, and turns over to Mount Baldy, you know, over to the east. It's the only mountain we have. It's the only analogy I can come up with. Mount Baldy, we're in Indiana. Mount Baldy, you know, rise and be cast into the sea like this. And we look over and here, you know, here's this giant dune rising into the sky and the children are falling off of it that we're playing. And... and <laughs> it, uh, slams into Lake Michigan in this huge wave and all the rest. Can you imagine us like looking at all of that and then looking at this guy? Wow. Right? Like, let's vote for a new senior pastor right now. He's the man. (laughs) And I'd be voting with you. I can't do that. We would be impressed by that. And that's kind of what Paul is doing. Let's say you have just an, an impressive gift of faith. And when you get around things, things happen for God. You're a mountain mover. That have to mean that you have the favor of God. That someday you're going to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Actually, not necessarily. Now that's not to say, if you're a mountain mover here, that you aren't in the favor of God. doesn't mean that. It just means that God is not impressed by your mountain moving. Why? Who's doing the mountain moving? We don't move any mountains. God is the one doing the mountains. It's like the gift. God's not impressed with the gift because he gave the gift. God's not impressed with the mountain moving because he's the one that's moving the mountain. That's not the criteria. How big a mountain did you move? It's why did you want to move the mountain? And whose glory were you doing it for? This is the thing that God cares about. Whether it be the mountain or the hill or the molehill. Anything without love, even mountain moving, equals nothing. And now Paul like does the ultimate. He says in verse 3, If I give away all that I have, and if I uh, deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Even extreme generosity without love means nothing in the eyes of God. And I think this one in particular for an American church, American Christians like us, this really kind of strikes at uh, the the heart. It it gets us down deep because as Americans, there are a few things that we value more than our money and our possessions. 
So we would like to think, if I am giving up this thing that is so valuable to me, it, I must be doing it for the right reason. Because I love money so much. If I give it away, I can't be doing it for any other reason than agape love. Well, if we look at the text, notice that the example is extreme. If I give away all that I have. So this is not just like average Christian tithing to the church and sending a little bit extra to the missionaries. This is, this is, uh, radical giving. Selling the house, emptying the bank account, retirement accounts cashed out early, big garage sale for all the things in the basement. You're taking all the things that you have, selling it all, and the Greek word here means this, divvying it out in small portions, probably to the poor. If I take everything that I have materially and I give it away, it's got to merit something with God, doesn't it? That's got to indicate that I'm doing it for the right reason, doesn't it? Actually... Can giving be done and motivated by vain glory, by self-glory? You bet it can be. Jesus highlighted that in the temple with the widow and the rich people who were giving. Do you remember? Here come the rich. They're giving their, uh, their, their money to God. And they didn't have online giving and they didn't have checks and, and they couldn't swipe their credit cards. So they had to give with these big bags of money. And so they would come in and, and no doubt very sanctimoniously drop their money into the receptacle, whatever it would have been. And, uh, and people were like, wow, that guy gave a lot. And you could just sort of see him walking away going, that's right, I did. Right? <laughs> did you hear the sound I just made with my gift? Next guy comes along, probably calculates and puts a few more extra in, so his is a little louder. (laughs) People are like, and of course you know the story, the widow comes up with two mites, blink, blink, and Jesus is like, that's what I'm talking about right there. Do you see that? Totally different criteria, totally different motivation. Can we give for all the wrong reasons? You bet we can. People do it all the time. They give in some way so that they might be admired as being generous. They give in order for their name to be on a plaque. They give in order for the university to name a building after them. For people to uh, be impressed with what serious Christians they actually must be. Because in the American culture, you gave money to God. You gave up the plasma tv to give to god you are so incredible great will be your reward someday not necessarily now by this i don't want any of you to go home and say well we ain't given then all right (laughs) this would be a very counterproductive message if that's what you get from it it is not a call not to give it is a call to examine why Because the heart of the matter is always a matter of the heart. And this is the level that God operates on. We want to look at the outside. We want to look at the, at the amount. We want to look at the mountain. We want to look at the, the grandiose thing that we go wow about. And so did the Corinthians. But God's like, I don't care about that stuff. Why are you doing it? That's what I care about. Is it motivated by love? Because anything without love means nothing. Even generosity. And finally, suffering without love equals nothing. 
He says this, if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, there are some textual issues here. It's a little hard to know exactly in the specific what he is saying, but it is not hard to understand in the general. Essentially, what he is saying here is that for us, we would look at anybody that would personally put themselves out to the degree where they are personally suffering for, for physically even, for God. And we would look at that and say, they must be doing it for the right reason. That's how some of us look at the missionaries. Right? Why would you go live in a hut? There's no Starbucks. There's no, there's no stores nearby. It, you're drinking nasty water. You're, you must be so uncomfortable, the bugs and all that. You, God must really love you. Because look at the suffering that you're doing for him. Is it possible to physically suffer apparently for God and yet to do it for the wrong reasons? To do it in a way so that people will say, woe is you. Oh, oh, you're amazing. And to want those strokes for the suffering that you're doing for the kingdom of God, absolutely it's possible. And so what Paul is pointing out here in the big picture is that even the most amazing gifts and the most amazing accomplishments spiritually and the most amazing insights theologically and, and, and the most amazing willingness apparently to suffer for God, if they are not motivated by love, if the impulse for them is not the good and the joy of another and the glory of God, that act, no matter how great it is, means nothing to God. That is what he is saying. And this seems so over the top, doesn't it? I mean, how can this be? How, how, can, how, can, how can these things, I mean, because most of us probably look at these things and say, well, this is very troubling to me because I've never moved a mountain. I've never moved a hill. I've never moved an anthill. Where do I stand before God? I can't talk to angels. I can't talk to my wife. Where do I stand before God? I'm not particularly insightful. I'm not brilliant theologically. I'm just like average Joe. And if you're saying that those amazing things don't necessarily mean that I'm in with God, well, what about me? And that is the point what Paul does here is he, he takes the things that the Corinthians propped themselves up with and looked at themselves, the grid through which they looked at themselves and had such a high view of themselves. He says, oh, you think prophecy is really cool if you have a little bit of insight and you think that maybe God's done a few things that are kind of cool in your church and, and, and you've suffered a little bit for the name of Christ and you're looking at those things and saying, we must be good with God. Let's just say that you knew all mysteries and you had all knowledge and let's say that you could actually move mountains and let's say that you gave your entire body in other words trump 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 i trump all of your props even if all of that was the case if you don't have love it means nothing to god that's what he's doing here and friends i told you at the beginning that this is one of the passages that lay our hearts bare And I don't know if you're beginning to feel it. I hope you're not just listening. I hope that you're thinking about yourself 
and your own life and the reality of standing before God and giving an account of your life and what he's going to say and why we do what we do. And the reason this makes it so like embarrassing, it is so naked feeling, is that when you look at this, who of us, who, who can stand here and say, I do that, fine, I'm good. In fact, if I was to be honest with you, I, I've... I've spoken here i don't even know how many times well over a thousand i'm sure messages here at bethel Uh, i would be frightened to know how many of those messages that i gave in my deep part of my heart kind of thinking that you're you're thinking that i'm pretty good at it or wanting secretly in my heart for somebody afterwards to go that was awesome which i interpret as you are awesome lots of them lots of them when i think of how often i secretly want somebody to notice my sacrifice for the ministry wishing somebody would admire me for it in fact, you want to know what I look, what I see when I look in the mirror? I see somebody who has never once in his entire life done anything purely for agape love. And you want to know why I can say that? Because I am a sinner. I have this sin nature. I'm going to have it until the day I die. Which means that even in my most noble moments... When I am doing with a really high percentage something for the good and the joy of another, there is always a percentage in there. There's always a little bit of me in there, a little bit of self-interest, a little bit of vainglory, wanting something for me in it. And I will have that until the day that I die. And I'm looking at a room of people that I know are exactly like me. We are sinners And friends, if we really understand this passage, and I'm not just talking again about the superficial readings. Anybody can read this passage superficially and go, oh, that's kind of nice. I feel good about it. Love out the door. But if you really grapple with what it is saying on a deeper level, it has to do something. And this is my first application. Is seriously understanding what this is saying drives us back to the grace of God. Who? By this, by this, who's, who's anything but nothing here? It is only the grace of God that chooses to use sinners like us who are always a little bit basically self-inclined. And yet he uses us in spite of ourselves. That is the grace of God. You here, it doesn't matter who you are. You don't have to come somehow get to a point of 100% agape love. You will never get there. And yet, God can and will use you in ways that you can and will be commended for someday. We are sinners. Other services amen that, I think. We are sinners. We are selfish. So I don't think that we should read this and think, well, then what's the point? I'm not even going to try. Only Jesus served God without sin and without self. And the second application is this, that we must try to the degree we can to do what we do for God for the right reasons. 
This is a call to heart check. This is a call to, to care, to evaluation of why I am doing what I am doing for the Lord. And for most of us, you know what this means? Repentance. Repentance. Repentance from the kind of self-focused, when it's convenient for me, when I'm acknowledged for doing it, you better say thank you, I want my name in the bulletin for doing it, ego strokes from the leadership, only high visibility service that makes me look good, approach to when and where I will serve God. Do I need to say that again? Did you get what I just said? How do most of us think about the things that we will serve God in? What's in it for me? Does this work for me? Am I going to enjoy doing that or not? I mean, what did, what did you think when Brad was up here talking about the children's ministry need? How many people checked out immediately? Kids. They never say thank you. I've done that before. You feed them their snacks, you teach them the Bible, they're out the door. Kids. Hmm. Why would you or not serve in that area or any other? You see how subtly we just work this little self in there like this? And now our service is nearly not about the other person or what we can do for somebody else or the glory of God. It is what makes me look good, what makes me feel good, what makes me happy, what works for me. Repent and say, Lord, if greatness in the kingdom of God is being the servant of all, I want to be at the front of that line. Or in the words of a friend that came to this church, I'll always remember this. He said, you know what? He was new to the church. He said, you know the jobs that, that you're embarrassed to ask anybody to do? You know the things that you're, you, you don't think anybody will want to do? He goes, I want that. That's what I want to do here. And you see, that's the spirit of it. I'm not here to magnify myself. I'm here to serve the Lord. And I want to, have a, I want to be a blessing to other people. To strive for that impulse and that motivation is where I think we need to go. Perhaps ask others, what do you perceive in me? What do you perceive and why I do what I do? And I can't emphasize how important this is. You are going to stand before God, Christian, and give an account for your life. Will there be anything to show for it, or are you wasting your time? Well, how would I know if I'm wasting it or not? Why are you doing what you're doing? Why? Who are you doing it for? Are you doing anything? You know, nothing minus love equals nothing as well. All right? So don't go with that formula. Do something. But in the doing of it, as best you can, go before the Lord and say, God, I want to do this for you. I want to do this for your glory. Purge from me, me. I want to do this. It's all about about you. And friends, we're going to end uh, right where I said we're going to be all the time in this series, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. You might say, well, how can I get to that perspective? The cross of Christ does it. Let me illustrate it to you this way. This week I was at uh, my physical therapy. Did you know that I had knee surgery? (laughs) Pastor Steve, this is a message about not being about you. I know. Yes. Yes, I had knee surgery a few weeks ago, two two and a half weeks ago, uh, to be exact. And... I'll be honest with you, I'm, 
I don't mind receiving pity from people. I kind of like it. I like a little bit of sympathy. You know, there are some people that are very stoic about it. I'm fine, don't ask me. But I kind of like people going, oh, that must have hurt. Yeah, it did. And <laughs> are, you, are you okay? Well, I'm trying. And, you know, that kind of... Uh, <laughs> it's like my love language somehow, I think. So... I don't mind a little bit of a little bit of that and and some sympathy and I'm really loving the handicapped parking pass they gave me for having the surgery so uh, so anyway this week I went to I went to my therapy session and so I go walking into the little reception area and I walk in and there's this guy that's sitting in the chair probably a 20 year old guy roughly you know big smile nice guy and he's sitting there, and as I walked in, I looked at him, and I had one of those moments where, on the outside, I was like, like this, but on the inside, I was like, <gasps> because he had shorts on, and his, first of all, he had a scar from like here down to here, foot or two foot long scar, kind of nasty looking. And he had coming out of his leg, all these different angles, these big, thick steel rods, which were attached then to this exterior like skeletal structure thing that went all the way around this. I mean, it looked like Frankenstein's leg. That's what it looked like. And, you know, on the outside, I'm like, oh, hi. And on this side, I'm like, oh, what did they do to you? You know, that kind of a thing. <laughs> so I kind of asked him, I said, well, what surgery did you have? <laughs> Mental note, I do not want that surgery. Uh, and he says... Well, I was born with bowed legs. And nine months ago, I had this surgery, and they went in, and they basically broke my whole leg up so that they could put it back together straight. And he goes, and in, in a couple weeks, I'm really hoping that maybe I can get these big steel rods out of my leg. He was all excited about that. In a couple weeks, after nine months... So I'm looking at like his scar and all of that and kind of looking at Because I have scars. I do. Let me show you. Look, right there. It's at least like three centimeters long or so, I would say. I have scars. But I don't have a scar like, like he's got a scar. And, I, and then they put me on the stationary bike, so I'm riding the bike, and they're doing therapy on this guy, and I'm watching him as, you know, he's, he's nine months after surgery, he's doing this, you know, like that. Suddenly my thing didn't seem quite so significant, not compared to his. And friends, I think that whenever we think that maybe, just maybe, we have done something worthy of spiritually boasting, something that we look in the mirror and we think, oh, look at me. Look what I have done. Look at the mountain that I've seen moved. Look at the insight that I have. We kind of think to ourselves, I really am maybe becoming something around here. We must go to the cross of Christ and realize that in comparison to what he did, even our greatest efforts really don't mean a whole lot to be the son of God and to come to this world in the frailty and the weakness of humanity 
and to live in this place or with people like us. And for three years, from age 30 to 33, to do nothing but tell people the truth, to meet needs, including feeding the poor and healing the sick, to minister to the down and out, uh, like the tax collector and the prostitute, to touch the leper, to do all of this, to be the embodiment of love, perfect love. And yet, what did we do to him? We killed him. The perfect expression of love. God died for you. And he died for me. And when we go from this passage to the cross, it puts things in its proper perspective. Perfect love is a person. It is Jesus. We sometimes sing the song, such a tidy offering compared to Calvary. Nevertheless, I lay it at his feet. And that's where we are, isn't it? Who here amongst us is noteworthy in comparison to that? None of us. But the glorious thing is this. Anything minus love equals nothing. But anything with love equals greatness in the eyes of God. And that means that this is within reach of every single one of us. You don't have to move a mountain. You don't have to be amazingly insightful. You don't have to be a great speaker or orator. You don't have to throw your body into the fire to be burned. Simply, faithfully, for the right reason, offering your service to God is something that he delights in. And something that he promises one day he will not only commend us for, but he will reward us for. Love is what makes the difference. And what does that love look like? Well, it looks like verses 4 through 8, which we will be discovering in the weeks ahead. Anything minus love equals nothing. Heavenly Father, we pray today and ask that you would please impress upon our hearts this truth. I pray over the congregation. I pray over my own life. Lord, we want our lives to, to matter to you. And I pray that you would help us on the level of our motivation to understand and to recognize how easily self weasels its way in and that we might do battle with it and that we might battle it with truth, namely the cross of Christ and the example that he gave, a bloody Savior riding on a cross for us. Lord, I pray that we might be in awe of what he did and that we might in small ways Uh, emulate what he did, that we might be in this world living, breathing examples of the love of Christ, to whom be all glory, both now and forevermore. Amen.